Good morning. All right. So this morning we find ourselves back in the book of Revelation. We find ourselves bringing the message to the churches to a close. And since my wife didn't have a whole lot of room on her post about the title, she shortened it all up. So even though it says, what's your temperature, that's not really what the title was, but that's okay. It works. So this morning we're going to look at the seventh church in the book of Revelation. We're going to see some interesting things. We're going to see a lot of correlation to the church today. We're going to see also that Christ now is talking to the church more individualistic than he is as a whole. We're going to see some interesting characteristics of Christ that he points out to the church in witness against them. But one thing I also want you to notice as we read through it and as we go through it this morning is the love of Christ to rebuke the church. Because if he did not love the church, he wouldn't rebuke it. He would allow it to go on and walk in destructive manners, allow it to walk in sin. And yet, because of his deep love for the church, for his bride, Christ rebukes the church once again. So this morning, if you're not there, go ahead and open your Bibles to chapter 3 of Revelation and to verse 14 is where we'll start and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And it says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning or source and origin of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say that I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, you are miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness would not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your precious word, for your word that was made complete and given to the church for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We thank you that you are able to equip us through your Spirit for life full of godliness and righteousness. And Lord, as we look at the message to the church of Laodicea this morning, may we see you in the splendor of your glory. May we stand in awe of who you are, but Lord, may we take it also as a warning to our hearts to not lift up our hearts in pride. Lord, may we look to you to be the satisfaction in our life to fulfill our all in all. For the word says that we live and move and have our being because of Christ. Lord, may we remember that it is not in our strength that we rise each morning. For as David in Psalm 3 said, I lay down and I, and I, I slept, and I awoke for you, O Lord, sustain me. Father, we just ask that we will continue to look to you in all things and give you the glory and praise. 
just ask that you will guide us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Laodicea. It was a capital of wealth. It was a merchant's paradise. It was a foundering church. It was a church full of people who lacked conviction either way. It was a church full of complacency and tolerance. It was a church full of hypocrites and bigots. It was a church full of people that honestly didn't care one way or the other. And we're going to see that the message to Laodicea was a harsh rebuke, but it was one that was needed. The church in Laodicea, the word Laodicea means people ruling or the judgment of the people. And it's interesting that that title is given, that that explanation is given of its meaning, because in the end times, it is the people who judge their own, will judge their own hearts before the Lord to accept Christ or to rebuke him, to accept salvation or to walk away. And people need to judge their own hearts to see where they stand. Scripture over and over again tells us to weigh our hearts, to weigh our thoughts, to weigh our actions, to see, to test and see that we are in the faith. The church here was complacent. It did not want to work. It did not want to do any works for salvation because salvation isn't works-based, but it didn't follow through on the love of the law and the love of the Lord by following Christ and obeying His commands. But Jesus starts off to the church and He says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. It is Christ who is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. It is He who keeps them and brings them to pass. God speaks and Christ acts. And it is this witness who is faithful and true. He is the one who stood before the world and when He had His earthly ministry and proclaimed who God was to all men. He proclaimed the truth of God's Word. He took the law and He expounded upon it and showed the heart of God in the law. He showed that the law was a schoolmaster able to teach and to bring one in around to righteousness. He was able to sit there and stand and rebuke sin as it was sin. He called it out. He did not ignore it. He dealt with sin. He dealt with broken people. He dealt with the sick. He dealt with the diseased. He dealt with the demon-possessed. And over and over again, he continued to say that I am who I am. He was faithful in the fact that he was the Son of Man and he was the Son of God. He was faithful to show who God was in him. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He didn't pull any punches with his disciples. He challenged them continually and daily. And it is this witness that we are to uphold as Christians, as little Christ, as that word implicates. We are to be faithful in our witness of who Christ is to the world. Do people look at us and see Christ? Or do they look at us and just see an extension of a wacko world? That we have our own beliefs and we walk in a weird way. We walk in an intolerant and bigotous way. But to be in Christ is to not compromise truth. That's why he's faithful in the true witness. Because Christ never compromised truth. He stood upon truth and truth alone because he is truth. And then he goes on to speak that he is the beginning of the creation of God. That word beginning also means origin or source. It's not saying that he was the first created being in creation. He is the origin and source of it. And just to back that up, let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. If you turn back just a little bit. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place or preeminence in all things. For it is the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Again, we go back. Christ is the origin and source of all things. He is the beginning of salvation for all, and he is the beginning of all life. It is this one who has the authority and the power, the preeminence in all things, whether in the spiritual realm or in the earthly realm. It is this one who comes to the church and he explains himself that way, that he has the authority over the church. Why? Because he is the head and the source of the church. He is the life of the church. Without him, there is no life. There is no church. He is the beginning of creation. Therefore, he has authority over that creation to tell it what to do. And it is this one who comes to the church that is in dire need of Christ. And again, we see the words that we've repeated and seen repeated over and over in all the, all the churches. He says, I know your deeds. And then he gets to the heart of the matter, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. We get down to the fact that the church of Laodicea was thinking they could ride a fence of complacency, that they didn't need to be zealous for the works of Christ, but they didn't need to be zealous in their outward refusal of Christ. They thought that they could just kind of sit in the middle and ride the storm. They thought they could be noncommittal. They don't need to commit to Christ, but they don't need to commit fully to the world either. And that is a fallacy. It is a falsehood. Because if you are not for Christ, you are against Him. There's that absolute separation of the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. There is no middle ground. You either must be sold out for Christ or you're sold out for the world. That is what he's getting at. And he's rebuking this church harshly because they continued to reject the fact that they had to make a choice. How many of us, when you go to grab a warm drink, enjoy it when it's maybe just barely above room temperature, but you're expecting it to be hot? That's just like, spit it out, right? Or you go to grab a cold drink, and it's just really warm like it's been sitting in the sun all day it's not satisfying there's that knee-jerk reaction of just get it out of your mouth right well that's what christ is saying the church is to him 
the church is so disgusting at this point in the way that it was living and then it's lack of love or it's lack of hate for Christ that he just says that it's just like, I want to spit you out of my mouth. That's a sad place for the church to be. And yet that's exactly where the church is today. The church as a whole in this country plays church. It is lukewarm enough to where people think, okay, I can get comfortable here. Look how I like bath water. It's not too hot, not too cold. You can kind of get comfortable in it, right? A little tepid, right? But that's where Christ is saying the problem is. is because people get comfortable with the hypocrisy that's in the church. That you don't need to be sold out and a Jesus freak on this hand. But you don't need to be sold out and be a partier and all for the world on this hand. You can kind of sit somewhere in between, kind of in between. You don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat. You can be somewhere in between, right? Well, this idea and this pervasiveness in our country is causing the church to crumble outwardly because the church honestly isn't crumbling. It's actually being strengthened and being built up because Christ said the gates of hell will not prevail over it. But what we're seeing is the crumbling of the structure of a socialized church. The church in America is not based on the scriptures. It's based on the comfort and the likability of the church being like the world. It's trying to win the world with the world system. It doesn't work. Why? Because Christ and Belial cannot be together, right? Jesus spoke often of that. But yet, in our hubris as people, we tend in our pride to think we have a better way. And that is exactly what Christ is rebuking here. You cannot say, I love Christ and live like the world. And you cannot love the world and say you love Christ. You can't serve two masters. You can't ride the proverbial fence. There's not a fence there. It's either the chasm of hell or the blessedness of Christ. That's all you have as a choice in your life. Will you follow the master or will you rebuke him? And it's kind of fitting that we started the book of Amos this morning because it starts out with, Christ, uh, with God judging the nations for their abuse of Israel. But we'll see that he gets into also the judgment of Israel because Israel also <laughs> abuses Christ. But we see here in the church of Laodicea that they were trying to be a church without a commitment. It's like trying to get married without a commitment to your marriage. doesn't work. You can't ride the fence. You have to make a decision. You have to have depth, conviction. You've got to have love. You've got to have sacrifice. And in the end, they don't realize that they're sacrificing the, their eternal state. And he says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's a scary place to be, being spit out of the mouth of the Lord. And yet, when the church continues to walk in worldliness, that's exactly what he's going to do. And then he gets into the heart of the issue. He says, because you say. So again, he's going back to the heart of the people in the church is what they say and their convictions are. Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. The church in Laodicea was a banking center in Turkey, in modern-day Turkey, as we call it. They called it Asia back then. But Laodicea was a banking central. A lot of the merchants came to Laodicea to exchange monies, to do banking, to do business. 
but it was also rich in textiles. It was also rich in medicines, specifically eye salves. So it's interesting here that Christ actually is pointing out that the pride in what they produce is actually producing a false spirituality and a problem in their spirituality. And he points it out. He says, you say you have need of nothing. And then he says, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He gets down to the heart of the problem that you are disgusting in your sin. You say you are rich and yet you are poor in spirit. You say you have need of nothing because you have great clothes and yet you are naked and you are miserable. You know, it's actually reminiscent of what God actually said to Israel back in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 16, there is a very uh, pictorial um, explanation when God actually goes to Israel and says, you become horrible. And he says this. Um, He says, you were squirming in your blood. When I passed by and I looked upon you, behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands, and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown upon your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silk and silver, and your dress was of fine linen of silks and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced in royalty. Then he says this, And your fame went out forth from among you to all the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed upon you. And then he gets into how they used their beauty to play the harlot. How they gave up the beauty of who they were in Christ for the beauties of the world. And God judged them for that. And he's saying the same thing here to the church in Laodicea. You think you're wealthy and beautiful and wise and great and mighty, and you're wretched. You are poor. You are blind. What were they poor in? Poor in spirit. Even though they were rich monetarily. Monetary wealth means nothing. It gains you nothing spiritually. So they were poor and bankrupt. They were wretched and miserable. They were blind. They couldn't see the truth of the Word of God because of all the things that they pile around them. Do you realize when you put things of the world around you and build yourself up in the world that you become blind spiritually? When you place idols in front of your eyes, you place emphasis on things other than the things of the Lord, you become blind spiritually. And you become naked spiritually, dead in your sins. And he says this, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. You know, it's interesting here. It's reminiscent of two places in Scripture. The book of Isaiah in chapter 55 where God calls out and says, Ho to you, come, buy food, buy drink without money, without cost. Right? It's also reminiscent of First Peter, where Peter is saying, Your faith is like gold. Your salvation is like gold that is tested and refined by fire. This is the same language that Jesus is using to the church. He's saying, come, gain wisdom, gain knowledge, gain understanding from Christ, through Christ, without cost. Gold refined by fire, but also your salvation 
is that precious thing in the sight of God that he refines through the fire of his spirit and through the word. And he says, come, have those. Take this from me that you may become rich and that you may have white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. He's talking about basic, practical righteousness in everyday living. Do we clothe ourselves with the white clothing of Christ and righteousness in our daily lives? Or do we live in the pride of what we, like, what we are and who we are in the world? Because Jesus says, if you clothe yourself in the things of the world, you are naked. If you clothe yourself in white garments, you're, the shame of your nakedness is covered. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ does. We have that one hymn or song, His Robes for Mine. It's exactly what he's picturing here for the church in Laodicea. Take my robes upon you, robes of righteousness, that your shame may be covered. It's interesting. It's reminiscent of what Adam and Eve did. When they realized that they were naked, what did they do? They tried to sew a bunch of leaves together, right? Didn't work very good. So what did God do? Killed an animal, and he made them robes of fur. His covering sufficient. Ours in and of itself is worthless. It'll wither away. What happens when the leaves dry out? They become brittle and crumbly, right? He says, come and take white garments. Clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ. It's a daily calling. That's why Jesus said, daily, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Every day we must make sure that we put ourselves and we clothe ourselves not just in the righteousness of Christ, but in the armor of the word, right? Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so you may be equipped and stand against the devil. Do we do this? Are we purposeful in that? Are you purposeful when you get up in the morning to pray and to ask God for help through your day? Throughout your day, are you purposeful in prayer and in asking Christ to help you through situations? Or is it only until you're stuck in the miry clay that you remember to reach out? Practical righteousness is an all-day, everyday thing. It's not just in a moment when you're in distress or a moment when you need something or in a moment where, oh, okay, I need to look good here. Right? It's not a Sunday thing. It's not a Sunday and Wednesday thing. It's an everyday thing. And then he says, And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see the salve of the Spirit, to give us spiritual eyesight, that we may see the things that God has written in this book. Do you know without the Spirit, this book is a utter foolishness? I mean, really, do you really think any man would have wrote this book on his own if he was writing a superhero comic? No. Right? We always want the underdog to be, you know, all-powerful and have all these cool powers and stuff. And what did Christ do? He came and he humbled himself and he gave up the glory of who he was in heaven to take on the servant's form of a man. A man always wants to do his own thing, right? I made this choice and I'm good. But you know what? Salvation isn't that way. You have to give up to gain. It's part of counting the cost. We give up our pride. We give up our lives. We give up what we want to do, what we think is right, what we think is best for the things that God says is right and best and good. Each and every one of us has to make choices in our lives. If God called you to drop everything and go here or there, would you go? 
It's a question you should ask yourself. Is there anything that I hang on to that I wouldn't give up for, the, for Christ and for his sake? If he asked it of me, am I willing? It's not an easy question to answer. It takes a lot of time to start looking through the things in your life, to start looking at our comforts, to start looking at the things we've accumulated. But we need to be ready to give up all for the sake of Christ. Family, friends, position, wealth. Michigan. I know you Michiganders are tight-fisted on being Michiganders. So. But what are we not willing to give up? And then we need to learn to give them up. Doesn't mean he's going to ask it. But if he does, are you willing? The willingness of a servant is to do anything that the master has requested. Being able to admit that you're weak. It's a tough one. Especially for guys. Guys like to be strong and tough and self-sufficient. I know, honestly, one of the biggest blessings that come from having a bad back is I've actually had to learn to ask for help. I'm a very self-sufficient type of person. Most people that know me know that. I can do most things myself, and I just do them. Doesn't mean it's the smartest thing for me to do either. And my son asked me one of the hardest questions I've ever had. He said, if you could go back and redo it and not have a bad back, would you? That's a tough question to answer. And in some ways, yes, because I can't stand having pain every day and all that. But in some ways, no, because God had a purpose and a plan for it, and I've learned a lot, especially in humility, because I have to ask for help, because I can't do everything myself. And I've had to learn that. And it's a difficult one for somebody, such as me anyway. Then he goes on and he says this, For those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. How do you take the discipline of the Lord? Because it happens. Book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews with me. It's just a few pages back. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is a great book, hitting much from the Proverbs and much of the Old Testament. But in Hebrews chapter 12, he has this to say, starting in verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father will not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, so therefore none of us are without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subjected to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness, which is a command. All discipline for the moment does not seem joyful, but sorrowful. And yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you despise the discipline of the Lord when it comes? Do you ask, Lord, why are you doing this? You know, sometimes it's just to wake you up, to get you to look up. Sometimes it's to help you to grow. Sometimes it's you're walking the wrong way and God's trying to bring you back onto the path that he has chosen for you. Sometimes it's just to continue to show you that in patience and endurance, God is sufficient. 
Paul often asked if the Lord would take away the thorn from the flesh. And the Lord said, no, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Do we believe that? When the hard times come or when God's discipline and reproof come, do we believe that? That it's for our good. And we know that from the book of Romans that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, for those who've been called according to his purposes. God's discipline is good. It's perfect. It's righteous. And it has a point and a purpose. We get that from the blessing that he says in Isaiah 55 also. For I send my word forth, and it accomplishes all that I send it forth for. When you pick up God's word, he's accomplishing his purpose in your life. Know that. Take that. Be encouraged by it. And then he says this. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know what's interesting about that statement? Is it actually shows Christ on the outside of the church. It's interesting. This is the one church that actually Christ is speaking more to the individual than he is to the church as a whole. And the other churches, we've seen that he calls to a remnant, he calls to a group of people to stand strong and to repent or to stand steadfast and hold on to what you have. But here he specifically says, I stand at the door and knock. And he, singular, who opens the door, I will come in and I will dine with him. It's interesting that the church has grown to the point where no longer Christ is speaking to the masses, but he's speaking to the individuals. He's speaking to those who are left to open the door, to those who hear. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Since when did Christ not be the centrality of the church? Since when does he have to be outside knocking to come in? And yet that's what the picture is that we see here. Is he standing outside the, the hypocritical church knocking and saying, is anybody in there that's going to let me in? What do we do with Christ? For he knocks at everybody's door. But what do you do? Do you open it and invite him in? Do you hear his voice? Because he says and he promised that his sheep know his voice. Does he come in to dine with you and you with him? Do you realize that that's speaking of the food of the word? Do you know that you can be filled up spiritually on the food of the Word? We've got many pictures in Scripture that talks about that. Why do we go hungry spiritually when we have plenty to eat? Think about it. If you feel spiritually empty, open the Word. Start eating of it. Start taking it in. Digesting what the Lord has for you. Then he says, To he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's interesting here that he shows the honor that he gives and the privilege and glory that he gives to his church. As he overcame and was obedient to his father, and his father granted for him the glory of sitting upon the throne and ruling, so he also says to the church, to those of you who have suffered and been persecuted, for those of you who have remained steadfast and true and faithful, you will get the glories that I was blessed with. Why? Because we are legitimate heirs through Christ. It's interesting. It's just like in a culture to where you're born a slave. And you're always in that culture a slave if you're born a slave, and yet you get adopted into the royal family. It's pretty interesting because that's exactly what Christ does. To those who are undeserving, he gives the benefits and glories of sonship. And Christ is glorified in that. And praise God that he is. 
Because if he wasn't, it would be a different story. But since he is faithful and true, and he is the source of all creation, he calls out with the authority. And he has the authority to bless those who come to him. And for the last time we hear this statement, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's interesting, if you read through the book of Revelation, this is actually the last spot in Revelation where you see the church on earth. The rest of it moves into everything that must come after. These things must take place after these things. But it's interesting because God's heart turns back to Israel again and his dealings with Israel on their rebuke and their rejection of the Messiah. But here again for the seventh time we hear, he who has an ear, let him hear. Are we listening? Eve's not here to say no this morning. But are we listening? Are we hearing what the Spirit says to the church? And if we call ourselves the church, are we? Are we walking in faithfulness? Are we dressing ourselves in practical righteousness for daily living? Are we asking the Lord to anoint our eyes that we can see truth, that we can spot spot falsehood? Are we asking Him to give us understanding that we may not walk in the pride of life, that we will not be in arrogance, say we have need of nothing? For when you get to that point, beware. And how are our deeds? Because Christ says, I know your deeds. His eyes are always searching our hearts, knowing the intentions of the heart. Do we ask Him to make that clear and understandable to us? We've read much through these seven churches. We've seen Christ's praise of the church and doing things well. We've also seen His rebuke to those who are walking in tolerance of sin. What are we doing? Where are we at with that? How are we doing? By God's grace, we are doing well. And we'll continue to encourage one another to do so. I was half tempted to next week and continue on in the book of Revelation, but I think I'm going to take a break from it. We're going to jump, Lord willing, to the book of Zephaniah. Some of you are like, huh? There's a book called Zephaniah? Yes, there is. It's a great book. It's not long, but it's got a lot in there. So, Lord willing, we're going to pick that up as our our next book to work our way through. Then maybe I'll come back and continue on from chapter 4. But Chapter 4 is a great book, uh, a great section in Revelation. There's a lot there, a lot about true worship and understanding who we worship. But I pray that you are encouraged through this little short series, well, I say short, but short series that we did here on the churches. I hope you're challenged to continue to look that the true, true church will always expel false teaching, that I'll always stand for truth, that will always stand for Christ, that it will not be noncommittal, but it will be hot for the deeds of righteousness and for repentance. It will not be cold towards its first love. That will be faithful to the end. And as he says in chapter 1, the end is coming soon. Are we ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that throughout history, Lord, you have continued to deal with an impertinent people, 
a stubborn people, a people full of pride, people full of arrogance. And I'm not just talking about Israel, but all mankind. Father, we thank you that in your patience you have called many to yourself. And Lord, we give you praise and glory for that. And we just ask that we would continue to be faithful ministers of the gospel, that we would continue to preach the word, that we would continue to show others Christ and the love of Christ, that we would continue to show compassion, that we would continue to walk in humility and righteousness daily. And Father, we just ask that you will continue to build your church, that we may be holy. As we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Father, may we continue to live in that truth. May we continue to be challenged by it. May we continue to seek to be refined by your Spirit that we may be holy as you are holy. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples of history. We thank you for the examples of everyday practical living that we take from your word. And we thank you that in all things, your word stands true and faithful because Christ is true and faithful. Lord, we just thank you for this time that we have together in Jesus' name. Amen.